the difficulty I think is really achieving that balance, right? It's like doing evolution is easy. Never changing any, anything is easy. But how do you change things in a way that brings people along, brings their code and their investment along, but you know, still remains relevant in helping people solve you know, the new problems that they're trying to solve today? Hey, everybody. This week's episode of the Stack Overflow podcast is brought to you by Oracle. It's a little bit special. Instead of pre-roll or mid-roll advertising, this is a completely sponsored episode. We're going to be chatting with two great folks from Oracle about 25 years of the Java programming language. It's past, it's present, and it's future. Today is part one, and we'll be airing part two tomorrow, so I hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I have with me, as always, my wonderful co-hosts, Paul and Sarah. How you doing, y'all? Good. Hello. I'm looking up what the 25th anniversary gift is. Mm. Silver. Ooh, silver. Silver. Oh, great. It's the silver anniversary for Java. What yes. is Java married to? What, what anniversary <laughs> are we selling? <laughs> it's, it's married to the Wait. server. Yeah. With us this week, we have uh, two special guests from Oracle. We have Manish Gupta and George Saab. Two would like to introduce yourself, get on the mic a little and tell us who you are and what it is you do over at Oracle. Yeah. Hi, folks. George Saab here. I am the vice president of software development. That means that all of the folks at Oracle who are working on developing and evolving Java are in my group. And that you know includes everything from you know specifications to implementation working in OpenJDK on the JVM, the Java language, all of the Java libraries. That's you know everything from development, quality assurance, sustaining, performance, PM, RM, all that good stuff. Hi, this is Manish Gupta. My team at Oracle is responsible for marketing of Java and GraalVM globally. Can we get a sense of this ecosystem, number of users, number of libraries? Just like what are the, when you talk about Java in a kind of quantifiable way, what do you say? You know, I'll give you one number that probably has the largest meaning. There are 45 billion active Java virtual machines running around the world. Billion. Amazing. Where are most of them? Where are they mostly? They truly are all over the place. You know, Java with 25 years is in every industry, every geography, whether it's a small business or a massive organization, whether you are driving a bus, riding a car, flying a plane, Java is empowering and fueling that engine. Can we talk about where Java came from? I, I sort of am fascinated to get it from the horse's mouth. So what I know is that Sun Microsystems kind of wanted to like make a thing for remote controls. They called it Oak, and then something happened, and now there's 40 billion devices. Can you fill in can you fill in some blanks? Yeah, sure. So, you know, it, it was kind of interesting. A lot of the work, early work that was done on, you know, what at the time was called Oak was focused on set-top boxes, set-top devices, you know, which at the time I think a lot of people in the world were kind of thinking was going to be a more accessible way for sort of, you know, normal common people to be able to access the internet. Oh, and buy, buy stuff you saw on TV. There's actually a name for it, which is shows how old the idea is. Rachel's Sweater from Friends. Like, you'd be able to just buy Rachel's Sweater. Yeah. 
And and then I think, you know, I mean, one of the things that, that sort of happened at the time, I mean, lots of those user interfaces were kind of weird and clunky and difficult and so on. But at the same time, you know, the internet as a, a sort of consumer phenomenon really started taking off, right? So, you know, around the like early to mid 90s, the internet expanded, more sites became available, people became more interested in using it and found ways that often, you know, did not involve set-top boxes. But one of the things that really was true at that time was that most of the content that was there was kind of boring, right? It was fairly static. And so, you know, the folks um, behind what eventually became called Java, you know, kind of looked at this and, you know, realized that they had built something that was, you know, pretty interesting and easy to get your hands around and had a lot of potential and so one of the sort of first things that came along that really put people that put Java into people's consciousness was an agreement of partnership that was done with Netscape, who at the time, you know, were, were sort of had this fledgling browser that was pretty cool and they were trying to get people to use. And, you know, they ended up making an agreement that they would bundle Java into the browser. And so what that allowed people to do was write web pages that in the HTML could embed an applet tag. And that applet tag would make the, the browser client say, hey, I'm going to download a bunch of code from this server, and then I'm going to run it, and it's going to do something active, something more than just display a little bit of text. From that, we got a lot of crazy things like, you know, Duke, the Java mascot doing cartwheels and, you know, bouncing heads and stuff like that, but also a lot of practical stuff, right? Like a lot of the early interactive interaction models for things like online banking actually use Java in order to do the sort of more complex, a little bit, you know, more, more intelligent stuff. And actually, even in interactive television, you know, I go back to my days at the time, 95, 96, 97, I was at Apple working on interactive televisions, the set-top boxes that Apple was making, and Java was all the rage at that time. So uh, I think the original purpose was solved, and that interactive television has certainly evolved to what we see today as streaming video, and those things would just not be viable without uh, with Java. Yeah, no, I, now I talk to my TV and I tell it what I want, and occasionally it offers to let me buy something from what I'm seeing on the screen if I'm using an Amazon Fire. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's not Rachel's sweater, it's the actual episode of Friends. That was the thing. Like, it's, help me understand, so... I remember this era. I've got applets. I've got Java. It's got a standard library. It runs in the browser. At one point, I think there was even a whole Java-based browser called Hot Java. Like I'm there, you know. So we're, we're way back. And then it seemed to kind of I don't know. It wasn't exactly losing steam because it was everywhere. But the, the web sort of kept growing and growing, and Java became one part of the story. And then one day, instead of running Apache on your web server, everybody was suddenly building server-side Java kind of in an enterprise capacity. And this whole sort of like world of serious programming was coming into the web with Java on the back end. And, and I, frankly, I, I love this stuff. And I never understood like how that grew and how one became the other. Like how did it migrate onto 8 zillion Linux servers? And yeah, so I, I think, you know, the that evolution is interesting and there was a lot that was going on behind that, right? So if you want to say that some of the initial excitement around Java came from the fact that it was bringing life to something that previously had been static, there was an equivalent sort of excitement that was going on for de software developers. And what I mean by that is this, that if you recall at the time, one of the big challenges for people writing software was 
the very fragmented landscape in terms of the different kinds of platforms that you had to support. But for software developers, what that meant was that you basically had to decide you know, who you thought your users were and which of these platforms was most important to them. And you were probably going to start out developing for that. And if you didn't know, you were going to choose Wintel because that was the big one, right? And then basically what would happen is if you were successful, you would pretty soon have people coming back saying, well, we really love your application, but we want to run it on this Unix, or we want to run it on Mac, or we want to run it on something else. And so for many software companies, they would have teams that were almost as big as their initial application development team that did nothing but port the application to five different platforms. And that, of course, was not much fun for many developers, but more importantly, it was it was inefficient, it was costly, and it meant that people didn't necessarily get the same experience on those different environments. And one of the things that, in some sense, the web enabled, but also Java dovetailed into, was the idea that your experience could be the same no matter which of these platforms you ran on. And for Java and software developers even more, you could write the application once and actually have it run on all of these different platforms. So as this, the sort of making more intelligent backends and people were choosing you know, what environment to use there, the same was true. If I'm going to write an application server, I'd like to write that once and have people be able to run it on, on you know, a multitude of Unixes, uh, including Linux, Windows, you know, w- whatever, right? Well, and you know, to, it would run on your, it would run completely in your IDE, right? So you could also, like, you could, you had the whole server set up. That, I, I do remember that being really foundational where it was like, oh, okay, I don't, I don't need to mess with a staging server to get my work going or move stuff over. Uh, I can actually just start manipulating and pretending that the, whatever Windows desktop I have right now is going to be, is the same as the Unix box in the cloud where this is going to live. That's absolutely right, right? The fact that, you know, you could be self-sufficient and write something and see how it was going to work when you eventually were deploying it on, you know, some some big metal was great. I think there was another key, though, too, which was that Java came along not just as, you know, a new language that was frankly, fun to write and, you know, didn't give you a bunch of easy and obvious ways to shoot yourself in the foot the way, you know, maybe C or C++ did. It also came with a very rich standard library of, of classes. And that that library anticipated, because it came up in the environment of the modern internet. So rather than having to grab a bunch of libraries from different places, you actually had a bunch of the pieces that you needed to do things like IO, parallelism, et cetera, already just right there at your fingertips. I think a lot of what I've seen enterprises really respond well to with Java is uh, type safety when there's lots of developers working on things. They really they really like that, as well as the strong object-oriented design, which at the time wasn't something you saw often, right? Like now it's something we take for granted, but um, the late 90s and early 2000s, it was something that was not standard. What do you see draw, drawing people to the language now, 25 years later? So I, I think one of the things that, that continues to draw people is that we've really tried to put Java at a good spot between constant evolution and providing things that help you solve problems with a sort of conservatism and, and, and focus on compatibility so that the code you wrote years ago 
still works great today. How much bigger of a language is it than, you know, standard library syntax than it was when it launched? Like how, if, if somebody was comparing the two, what would, what would they think? So it definitely is bigger. I think, you know, the, in the sort of early days in the, you know, from 1.0 to 1.1 to 1.2 and, you know, all of the sort of intervening releases, the library grew a lot and the group grew a lot. Like when I joined the Java development team as a, you know, young, fresh-faced engineer with only, only about 10 years of experience under my belt, you know, we were like 35 people. And, you know, I, I left the group five years later and went off and did other Java stuff and eventually came back. But at that point, I think we were like over 1,500. So it grew really rapidly. And, you know, it wasn't also just that group at Sun, right? There were people all across the industry who were interested in contributing to Java. And, and I think that's also something that led to its success, right, is it was never about, you know, just one vendor. It was always something that was a broad industry movement. But, you know, to, to your point, I don't have at my fingertips the exact, you know, number of classes and so on, but definitely grew significantly. Now, having said that, I think it got to a point, you know, around 1.5, 1.6, where maybe the library was not growing that much. But there was more focus on how do we evolve the language, right? Are we creating ways of making it easier for programmers to express certain kinds of ideas? And this is something that we really have focused on in the last few years you know, at, at Oracle is thinking of, well, what are the ways that people want to program? Right? What are the kind of language constructs that go beyond just you know, basic object orientation? We recognize that for certain kinds of problems, people really like to take a functional approach. And so we found a way of adding support for closures for lambdas to the Java language and used it in the library. Doing that kind of change is one that is in some ways more challenging because the temptation is to just quickly bolt more and more stuff on the side. And then you know you kind of quickly end up with something that is so big and complicated that you've now pruned off what you can do in the future, right? And even worse, you might have something that's hard for people to understand. So what we've always tried to do is really, if we're not sure how to do something in a way that feels right and natural and a part of Java, is actually take longer because obviously we don't understand it well enough yet. Well, I, and actually talk us through that process a little bit. I mean, 1,500 is a lot of, a lot of people. And so something like uh, lambdas for closures, a sort of relatively abstract thing. It has to come in. It's going to be in the language. It's going to go out. It's going to go out to, you know, eventually billions of installs, all different languages, needs to be communicated. So how do you get a feature like that spread out to the world? You know, somebody has the idea and then eventually it's on billions of devices. Just from a very high level, what's that process look like? Yeah, so the design and development that we do at this point, we do through OpenJDK. So our you know, developers who are leading projects to look at initiatives like things we want to add to the language, you know, we do the standardization part of that in the Java community process, the JCP, and we work on the, the design and the implementation in the OpenJDK community. Which you know gives a way for people from you know lots of different companies to collaborate. Now, typically, the way this happens is we'll have you know somebody who leads these projects, and most of those projects are are led by folks on my team at Oracle, who have a vision for you know the way we want this to evolve. But they will often go through a lot of design discussions 
understanding mm-hmm. what is it we want to enable, but also what does a particular design prevent? Are there things where making a certain choice, you know, enable certain things, but like might prevent us from doing something later that we want to be able to do. And maybe there's a different design that allows us to, to avoid that. And sometimes like in the case of Lambda, it can actually take multiple prototypes and revisions. And so what we typically do for that is we're working on it, on it in a project that can deliver binaries for people to test and give feedback on. And that's a pretty important thing because when something comes into the main line and goes into a Java release, that's something we take very, very seriously, right? So we're going to have to live with that. Everyone's going to have to live with that for you know, the next 25 years. So it's really important that we get it right. And so, for instance, with Lambda, I, th- I think there were you know, at least three different designs that we tried, got feedback on, you know, on different aspects of and revised. So you know, Lambdas in Java could have come out you know, five years earlier but no one would have liked them and they would have been really clunky and the performance would have been bad and they would have prevented a bunch of stuff that we've been able to do since. So instead, you know, what we did was took the time, tried it out, tried different things, considered the, you know, the, the positive and negatives. And ultimately what we found was the design we ended up with, and this is your question of, well, how does it get out there in the world? The design we ended up with is super simple and elegant, but it wouldn't have been super simple and elegant if we had taken the first attempt, right? It was the hard part was slimming it down to really just the essential bits and making it really feel like a natural extension of the Java that people know and love. Yeah. Sarah, you have a lot of experience with both like, you know, open source governance and working with community and then as an engineering, you know, manager doing stuff at Stack Overflow. How does what George was just talking about kind of square with your experience doing projects that have, yeah, these these longer time scales? Yeah, I was just listening to you and thinking about so at Stack Overflow we have a 10-year-old application, and a 10-year-old application accrues a lot of debt. One thing, for example, one thing we did recently was add dark mode. And what sounds like a simple thing gets really hard when you have an application that was built before less and SAS and variables and CSS were even a thing where you could easily switch things out. I was just thinking about that as I listened to you and imagining the type of technical debt you would have to pay down to easily add in things like Lambdas. Um, I was also reading about how y'all are currently in the process of moving the JDK from Mercurial to Git, which sounds very much like dark mode, where it's like one of those things that, oh, that sounds easy. Just like move it, just do it. But I can only imagine what it's like. Yeah, 25 years later, changing source control. What's that been like? That's uh, been an interesting process, and it probably takes longer than anyone could imagine. But it it takes longer because you know we're exacting and we're careful, and we want to make sure that we're making the right decision, and we're kind of bringing you know everyone along who's who is contributing and and working on it. So you know I think for the the move of of source code systems, that's something that you know again we tried out in a project, we tried a bunch of attempts, we put in support for moving from one to the other, and have been migrating projects starting with some of the smaller ones to see how did it work, what was their feedback, what were the things that they felt were positive and were making their development experience, you know, more smooth and faster, or what were some of the things that were holding them back where we might need more infrastructure. Ultimately, you know, some of the people who were kind of most skeptical of this because they knew what they had, they knew how it worked, they knew they were productive, why should I change? Also, you know, once they tried it out, found that it wasn't that bad, there were a lot of positives. 
And what's more, you know, using something that has a lot more users meant that it was more accessible to more people and they could see the benefit of it. So, you know, th- those kinds of things are, they're never easy, right? Like technical debt uh, is something that, you know, many projects have to put up with or live with. And ultimately, you know, it, it's sort of a question of how important is it for you to be able to move forward? And are there parts that you can identify where you can have some kind of migration path that makes sense? Thanks for listening to the first part of the Oracle episode celebrating 25 years of Java. Tune in tomorrow for part two.